And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. My fellow Americans, welcome back to another episode of the Inspired Service Podcast, where my guest today is Jason Coe. Jason is the Cross-Boundary Collaboration, Climate Change, and Ecosystem Service Program Lead in the State and Private Forestry for Region 5 at the U.S. Forest Service. That title is a mouthful. We'll get more into what it all means later. But Jason, first, I want to just welcome you to the show. Thanks, Noah. I'm glad to be here. So Jason, your career has had a lot of really interesting elements. You've worked at home here in the U.S. You've worked abroad. You've worked with a variety of agencies and in a variety of roles. I want to just start at the beginning of your of your professional career and talk through some of the decisions that you made and, and how they played out. So you did your undergrad at, at UC Berkeley. You're out in California. And when you graduated, you made the decision to join the Peace Corps. What directed you towards the Peace Corps? Well, I mean, in some ways, it was uh, a little bit random, but also I, I would say perhaps not so in the end. You know, I found out later after I applied that my mother had always wanted to do Peace Corps. But in Berkeley, it was a friend, a colleague of mine who was, uh, we were all kind of trying to figure out what we wanted to do after college. And he said he had applied to Peace Corps as one of his options and kind of was selling it to me as a way to see the world and travel. And I'd never really been outside the U.S. aside from a quick hop across the border to Mexico. And so that was really attractive to me. And I, I, I wasn't quite sure where, where I wanted to do with my, with my life and my career. And so I applied and applied to a whole bunch of different jobs and agencies and departments at the time. And Peace Corps just kept going. Yeah. Then they offered me a, a job, if you will, in, in Mauritania and I accepted. And it, it, actually there was a gap year between when I actually graduated and, and joined the Peace Corps. Yeah. I think, I don't think that's too uncommon right? to uh, not know exactly where you're going after school and something coming upon your lap and it all working out really well. Yes. You said you applied to a bunch of agencies and departments. Did you always know it was going to be public sector for you? No, I would say definitely not. I mean, I experimented with a lot of different career paths in, in undergraduates. I interned at, a, uh, at Morgan Stanley Dean Witter. You know, I worked at REI and I loved doing outdoor activities. I, you know, waited tables and was offered a job in ma- management in, in the service sector and in restaurants. But I think um, looking back on it now, you know, service was always kind of a part of my life, you know, with from Boy Scouts, being an active member of the community, and also trying, trying to keep the places that we recreate on public land. So I think it, it, make, it makes sense to where I've ended up now. Um, but I don't think it was at the time I was like, oh, I want to be in public service and Peace Corps is a great way to do that. Uh, I don't, that was definitely not the thinking at the time. Yeah, no, that's, that's totally fair. It's more of a kind of an adventure. And imagine you spent quite a bit of time outside and, and, what when you found out Mauritania was the was the answer? What was your reaction? Was that like a yes? I know so much about that country, or was it a total blank slate? Like where where were you at? Yeah, totally, totally didn't know anything about it. And the recruiter who actually told me didn't know much about it either. They had originally wanted to send me to Mali. A lot of this was because I had taken a lot of French in high school and in college, and so they needed French speakers to go to French West Africa, and so Mali. The recruiter, I don't remember if they had served there or just knew it, but they had talked about it, you know, all the different cultural aspects, and she was very excited about it. And then when I told her I couldn't leave on that date, what was the next date for the next Francophone country, 
was in Mauritania and she couldn't really say anything about it except that it was very austere. And so I had to definitely do a lot of research of my own. And it turned out to be a very unique country. And I mean, it was, it was a great experience for me. And I stayed a third year beyond the, the base too, and was there during a very, some very interesting times in the early 2000s um, with September 11th and the Iraq-Afghanistan wars. Being a, an Asian American as well to go to a different country and help them understand that all Americans aren't blonde, blue-eyed surfers from California or something like that. Um, <laughs> yeah. So first of all, I mean, being in a conservative Muslim country during 9-11 and then kind of all of the, the actions that followed on behalf of the United States must have been fascinating. But for, as a Peace Corps volunteer, you arrive in a place that you know nothing about. You do speak the language. So that's at least you have that. What are you being asked to do? What does that look like for a 22-year-old person or 23-year-old person who just steps on the ground day one? Well, it's, it's really, really diverse. Peace Corps has a really wide variety of, of countries that they partner with from Romania and you know, a lot of countries in Eastern Europe, which are fairly well-developed and programs that you'll be placed in there are, are fairly professional and urban to countries like the one I was in in Mauritania, which are very rural. It's, I think it's like the second or third least pop, dense populated country in the world after Australia or something. So the experiences are very diverse. And then within that country, even there's a, a diversity of, uh, of the programs. And so on one hand, there's the education program where volunteers are placed in a middle school or a high school as a teacher. And so they have like a nine to five type job, four or five or six classes they teach, curriculum to kind of follow. And on my end, and one of the reasons why I stayed at third year was I was placed in a, a, a rural town, about 30,000 people, but didn't really have a set program of work. My area of focus was small enterprise development or community development. And so I, I was working with a, an NGO. I was placed with an NGO that soon closed shop within a few months of me arriving. And so I didn't have a great, uh, a clear partner and just had to, had to figure out what was going on in the town and meet cooperatives and teachers associations and and kind of figure out what was needed, what interested me, what I, what I could offer. And I ended up doing a really diverse amount of things from helping other volunteers dig wells to doing a, a townwide health education campaign with some teachers to teaching women how to make soap to sell in their local village cooperatives and doing some accounting with the welders. I mean, it was a whole wide range of stuff. What did you yeah, know about so making a, soap? <laughs> yeah, nothing, nothing. And, uh, I mean, that's part of the experience is, is, you know, what, what, it was kind of an idea that had come around that people were like, oh, this could be something that you do with women's cooperatives. And I had, I had some families that I knew that were, you know, the leads of, the, of different cooperatives. And so I just basically worked with them and, and a couple key women and we experimented and just bought different ingredients, bought, made different molds. And, and then um, finally, when we felt we got to a, a good uh, replicable model of the process, we held a workshop and had them teach their peers about what they've done. And it wasn't perfect. I mean, it doesn't look like, you know, a nice bar of soap, <laughs> but it's, it was cheaper as we tried to demonstrate and it worked as effectively as we tried to demonstrate. And it That's was the learning cool. process of all on all sides. That's for sure. And what was the reaction? So, I mean, was, was it uniformly positive? Was everyone happy you were there? Did you have any kind of resistance or skepticism on behalf of the folks that you were working with? I would say, yeah, 99% super supportive of, of Americans and, and of myself and, and specifically being there during these, I think, sensitive times for, or defining times for Muslim American relations uh, was very interesting. I mean, there were definitely some folks, they definitely saw Americans and general American foreign policy as, as not always in line with um, kind of what they thought should, uh, was best to be happening, but no one there was ever 
aggressively mean or dangerous. There, there, I did have some colleagues who got some threats and we were consolidated for security reasons a few times and our, our leadership decided in the end not to evacuate the program due to kind of the, the, the concerns were isolated and, and not but overarching you know, support existed. And so we would consolidate for a few weeks, like after September 11th, we consolidated for two or three weeks and we just stayed in a, in a camp together. And then after things had settled down, we figured out that everything was okay or when got put back. But then there was also an elevated security protocol that was instituted. So I think this was, again, on September 11th, one of my, one of my colleagues who lived in a village outside of my town, we had to get a note to her that, that she had to come in because we were being consolidated to potentially be evacuated. And it took three days to get the message to her to come back. So after that, everyone got satellite phones so we could communicate emergency situations immediately. Wow. A lot to handle for anybody, let alone for someone kind of just out of college. I, I can only imagine how formative an experience that must have been and what, you know, the effect that it had had on you. So you've been, you're kind of in this adventure in a new place, doing new things, it sounds like every day. How did that influence how you saw your career unfolding? Was it like, I'm going to spend all my time abroad or was it, gosh, I really miss home? What, what was the reaction? A little bit of both, but I mean, definitely, I would say for the first half of my career, it, it, it was the driving factor for what made me study international relations in grad school. It's what motivated me to apply for an internship at USAID, to work in the, in the private sector on USAID projects, and eventually for the Forest Service in an international capacity. I mean, just being fascinated with foreign cultures, and I eventually got pulled into the natural resource sector within that space, being loving you know, uh, uh, working with people who work with the national parks or, or, or wildlife reserves or for sustainable forest management in, in, in those countries and being able to kind of help support them do their job better was, it, it was really exciting for me. You mentioned that you went back to grad school. Coming out of the Peace Corps, was that, was that like a, oh my gosh, I've got to go back and now specialize in something? Or was it a, I'm not really sure what I'm going to do next? Let me take a couple of years and go get a degree, or was it some something else entirely? Well, for me, I mean, I went to undergraduate straight from high school, and I, you know, I looked at a lot of different uh, classes and went from engineering to economics to history and undeclared and all the everything in between. So now, after Peace Corps, I kind of like had an idea of like, oh, this is something I really enjoy doing, but I should probably have some more academic background to get me a help me get a better job afterwards. And there's certainly people who, who are able to get um, very good jobs straight out of the Peace Corps as well. But I just didn't really have a great, it hadn't really congealed for me kind of what I w- wanted to do. And so applying to grad school seemed like a great way. And it was also a, a good way to reintegrate into uh, American culture and American society. Although, the, to be honest, the first year of my grad school, I, I did it in Italy through the Johns Hopkins School of International Studies program. And that wasn't completely in the U.S., but I was within a, an American school and then the second year in D.C. Okay. You had, you'd alluded to, to kind of the transition when you came out and you did some, some work with USAID and then you were with Comonics in the private sector. How did natural resources fit in? What kind of helped you coalesce around, gosh, I, I want to be working with and, and on natural resources? Yeah, I, I would say that happened in Peace Corps. I wasn't doing a lot of natural resource work in Peace Corps. What did I miss about the United States? I, you know, I grew up camping and a lot with my family and Boy Scouts and friends, recreating in the, in the Sierra Nevada and on the coast in California. And it's something I'd always loved doing. And I think that was one of the big things I missed, those opportunities in kind of a mostly desert environment. 
yeah, so that coming out of teacher, I was like, I'd be great to kind of figure out how to work in a space concerning natural resources, but also in international and cultures. That's kind of what I focused my grad school applications on. And then during grad school, I, I, I focused on a track of environmental policy and international economics at sites and got an internship in between my, my two years at USAID in Democratic Republic of Congo in Kinshasa. I think that kind of coalesced everything there. I, was, I felt really lucky to have that internship opportunity. Then after I graduated from grad school, I just wanted to continue on that path. You did do a short amount of time in the private sector with Comonix as an as a implementing partner of USAID. What was that experience like versus being you know, an intern or being a Peace Corps member? Uh, how did you find the difference of being, a, being in the private sector working on these issues versus being on the inside? Well, so they're very, very different. I mean, my internship was very short. I was only an intern for three months. So I think a, 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 a massive exposure to kind of how things operated. And that was also in the field. But I'd say I'd, I'd contrast it more to what I went to after Commonics, which was at the Forest Service, managing international projects as well. They're both working towards very similar goals of trying to support projects doing sustainable natural resource management or sustainable forest management, but the models are very different. There's a lot more turnover at Commonics. There, you know, people would get fired and people would get hired fairly easily, which made it for a lot more flexible model of function versus in the government, it's very hard to hire or fire people. And so there's, there's benefits and, and I think and challenges with, with both models. There was also a lot more explicit pressure to always look for the next project and keep developing them at, at Commonics. And so, you know, they have a sustainable business model of, of, you know, having the next project lined up after this winds down. And so, you know, I was always working on next project development, which is actually how I got hired into the Forest Service well, as a contractor initially was to help them develop new programs. Um, outside the ones that they had, but it was, it was a much more of a, a development of a partnership with the embassy and or the USAID mission in the country versus, you know, bidding on a, a project, a solicitation that's been put out. And I, and, I mean, and, and, and you know, other piece of the puzzle would be in like, say, NGOs like World Wildlife Fund or Wildlife Conservation Society. And I think all three of those models for development within natural resource management, they have different roles to fill. And I think they are all needed. I don't think there's one that's better than the other. But I think, and they, I think for the most part, they work pretty well together in their different roles in different countries. So it was, it was kind of, it was great to, that I've been able to have been exposed to both of those. You actually were able to make the transition and get hired into Forest Service from, uh, as a contractor initially. And I think that's not so uncommon, certainly here in Washington. Can you just give us, what exactly is the Forest Service? What's the area of responsibility for that agency? Yeah, so the Forest Service manages the national forests and grasslands in the United States. It's one of the largest land managers in the country, along with uh, the Bureau of Land Management. I can't remember the specific numbers for nationally, unfortunately, but I can tell you for California, and especially most of the West, it's a significant portion of the, of the forest and the lands. For example, in California, it's about 20 million acres, which is about half of the forest and, and about half of the headwaters as well. So a lot of people know Yosemite National Park, which is managed by the Park Service, but uh, most of the land around that, surrounding Yosemite, is managed by the Forest Service. We, we manage a lot of buffer lands ar- around headwaters of the mountains and uh, of the states. What is the difference between the Park Service and the Forest Service? So I'd say one of the biggest differences, and I don't work for the Park Service, obviously, but Park Service is much more tourism-centric, and they're managing some core areas, the national parks, uh, around conservation and protection. Forest Service, by contrast, has a more multiple use approach where, um, you know, our mandate is to manage the, the land for, for the greatest good, 
for the greatest number of people. And so that's, there's not just one strategy for, for land management. I mean, there's a multiple uses from extracting, which includes, you know, logging and producing wood products to recreation, which is the diversity from uh, motorized vehicles to wilderness backpacking. There's watershed protection. A lot of the forests uh, are, are the areas around reservoirs and other drinking water sources for our cities and our agriculture areas as well as wildlife protection, a lot of important habitats. And so it's a balance of all those things together versus I think Park Service is a little more focused on the protection aspect. Now you also served in the Forest Service both domestically and abroad. What does the Forest Service do outside of this country? Well, I actually would liken it a lot to the Peace Corps, um, but for mid to late career professionals within the Forest Service. And so kind of uh, how I transitioned from the private sector to the Forest Service was as I mentioned, kind of helped them develop new programs. And then once some of those programs got established, I got hired on permanently. But my job there was to basically use domestic forest service experts to provide technical assistance to partner countries or ministries, a ministry of forest and in, in, in DRC or the uh, rangeland, uh, USAID rangeland livelihood program in Ethiopia to, you know, using our rangeland planners, our prescribed burn crews, our forest inventory specialists. And so they would go take their skill sets domestically and apply them abroad, working collaboratively and cooperatively with their counterparts in those countries. And so it's kind of, again, a, both a cultural and technical exchange, although a little more heavier on technical than in Peace Corps, because again, these are mid to late career professionals who've worked significantly in the area, just not in that context. But applying your knowledge from, say, California in DRC is it really helps you to kind of think about what you're doing and, and with a different perspective, with different resources, and can, I think, enrich your experience when you come back to, to California. And so, and at the same time, it, you know, a lot of these projects that are implemented by USAID implementing partners, whoever wins the, the bid, they don't have all of the time the, the right expertise um, within, say, bureaucratic natural resource management, to be frank. So, like, you know, being civil servants in the U.S., we can re relate very directly to the experience of civil servants in other countries and kind of that balance of politics and budget and service in ways that consultants can't always relate to those them in the same way. And so we can kind of provide that gap to help build the capacity of, of a lot of these other foreign country ministries of forests or parks, et cetera. It's interesting on a couple of levels. One, so your role was not necessarily as the technical expert yourself, but in, in helping pull from American technical expertise and deploy it internationally, which is kind of cool because you get to cover a lot of ground and, and engage with a lot of different people. But it's also interesting to think that that is a function of the U.S. government, that we are actively assisting other countries in their natural resource management, presumably not just with the intent of buying or trading for or otherwise receiving those resources for our country in return. So how do you think about why, what's, what's the kind of the mission? Why is the Forest Service engaged in that kind of activity abroad? So I should be clear. So I mean, the Forest Service was also engaged in the kind of activity that you mentioned um, just now in terms of, you know, talking about, you know, international logging trade and regulation and international policy on forest management, kind of the international scales with the United Nations, et cetera. But the, the program that I worked for, which I described earlier, was more focused on technical assistance to foreign governments. And that was actually a subset of the USAID programs. That was 
pretty much fully funded by USAID using money that they would have given to, say, consultants and contractors to do that technical assistance as part of their development program and giving that money to the Forest Service to use our experts. And we can leverage that because, well, we're a lot, lot cheaper, for one, than the consultants, but also, like I said, it enriches our domestic experience. It provides kind of a, a collegial partnership as well, as I, as I mentioned. So, you know, being a domestic civil servant managing forests and, uh, you know, a couple hundred thousand acres here or there, there's a lot to relate to another land manager in Zambia who's doing the exact same job, but in a very different context in terms of liaising with the communities on joint management or, or challenges from um, human wildlife conflict or trying to just integrate new technology or balance, you know, the capital city's desires with, with kind of your local community's desires and translating that. There's a lot to be shared and learn from each other on that, um, that can benefit on both sides. Absolutely. So Jason, I want to bring us up to more kind of current day and what you're doing right now. And I introduced you up front with the long title, the Cross-Boundary Collaboration, Climate Change and Ecosystem Service, um, State and Private Forestry, and in Region 5. Can you help us understand what that actually means? What are the different pieces of what it is that you do today? Sure. So, so Region 5 is the Forest Service area that covers California and the Hawaii and the Pacific Islands. There are nine regions in the Forest Service, so that's our designation. Where I focus mainly on California. We do have some partnerships with Hawaii and Pacific Islands to support them. State and private forestry is one of the three primary staff areas within Forest Service. So there's the National Forest System, which, are the, which is the, area, the biggest one, which manages the national forests. There's the research uh, staff area, which focuses on research. And then there's state and private forestry, which focuses on supporting and collaborating with the states and the state forestry agencies, in California's case, CAL FIRE, as well as some other natural resource agencies, as well as private sector and, and, and or private land. And so forests are, as I mentioned, um, both private and federal and state managed, but the things that affect forests don't respect jurisdictional boundaries, whether that be insects and disease or fire or reforestation. When you're trying to restore a forest health, you can't just restore the forest on your land. And so the state and private forestry's goal is really to kind of work collaboratively with the other landowners surrounding national forests and support those partnerships and this integration of strategies and support the, our neighbors to manage their forests sustainably as well. Our forests today are in a difficult state. They're, you know, they've, due to kind of both historic management and, and climate change and a lot of other kind of disturbances, they are overstocked. There's, that means there's, there's too many trees than compared to what it was, say, 100 years ago because of the suppression of fire. You know, we suppressed fire because, you know, in the early uh, 20th century, we saw that as dangerous and damaging, so we should put it out immediately. And that was, everyone agreed that was the best strategy. Of course, when you put it out immediately, that means that more, what burned is not, is now growing. And so thus we have denser forests, which now we've learned with climate change and increasing temperatures, longer summer seasons, the fires that do occur now, because there's more trees that burn, burn more severely, burn across more acres. And um, again, with kind of summers lengthening because of climate change, we have a longer burn season. So that's, we're seeing, especially here in California, these gigantic fires that are burning things at a very high severity. So now we're trying to catch back up and say, okay, we do realize that fire is an important part of the, of the ecosystem and that we need to restore our forests to kind of a more healthy state where they can be resilient to these fires and not only burn at high severity, but kind of burn at a mixed severity. 
And that's important for protecting communities as well as protecting the water supplies. But again, we can't do it alone. We are not, don't have a growing budget and um, we're not gonna be able to hire more people. So we need our neighbors, whether it be the state of California or a local resource conservation district or a local fire safe council to help us do that work. And that's a big change in forest service culture to partner with those folks to do more and more of the work themselves on forest service lands or across all lands. And so a big part of my job is to help facilitate that, those relationships, those legal agreements, those mechanisms and tools to achieve those goals. You alluded to partnerships. I think one of the interesting things I wanted to ask you about is this idea of the, the Forest Resilience Bond partnership that you, you all did with the World Resources Institute, Blue Forest Conservation, allowing investors to be outside investors to put up money for, uh, to finance forest clearing activities that are then paid back by the government over time. So it's this interesting idea where you tracked investment by making it financially meaningful returns. Tell us a little bit how that partnership is working and how it's playing out so far. So I should clarify, um, and that's, that's a, a common misconception for this um, partnership with, with Blue Forest Conservation, is that the government is not paying back uh, interest. The way that we piloted it here and the way that the Forest Resilience Bond is supposed to work is actually to have them bring in other partners. So in the case that we, we pilot now, they've brought in a water utility and they have an agreement with that water utility and that water utility will pay them interest for the amount that for the money that they are fronting on behalf of that water utility. And then the National Forest Foundation takes that, takes that money from the water utility that's being fronted by the Forest Resilience Bond and implements that on Forest Service land. And so we aren't actually, Forest Service and the government is not actually paying any money back to the investors at all. I think the advantage of why, not, why don't we engage the utility directly is that we, we don't have the, the, the right tools always to bring them on board in a way that is flexible enough for them being a private entity. So it's a great example of kind of one aspect of my job, which is trying to help us as the Forest Service quantify and communicate the values of forests to beneficiaries who aren't used to understanding those values. So, you know, we are very used to talking about timber and wood products and so to some extent jobs created by work on the Forest Service. But we're still, I think, relatively young in trying to communicate the benefits of water and watershed management and how those activities on Forest Service lands impact and benefit downstream folks from farmers to urban dwellers who drink the water, as well as recreation. So how do you value when people go and spend a day hiking? Is that worth something? And how do you value that? And then, of course, there's also more tangible of like, well, they also will spend money at the local gas station or at the local hotel. And so how can we be better as Forest Service and talking about all these assorted benefits that occur on national forests for local communities and the larger global community to bring in new partners who, ben who are the recipients of these to together kind of leverage our resources to maintain those benefits. And that's one of the, I think, things that really drives me now is, you know, especially, so I'm, I'm a new father, I have a 19-month-old, and, you know, one of the, miss the mission of the Forest Service is to, and I'm going to paraphrase this because I don't remember the exact words, but it's to sustain the health of the forests for current and future generations. And that's, that's really important to me. I mean, I, I mentioned earlier that, you know, I grew up recreating and enjoying the natural forests in California. So it's been really special for me to come back now to work in California 
supporting those same lands that I grew up on in a way that hopefully my daughter can, you know, can enjoy them in a, in a, in a way that's sustainable. So Jason, just want to hit you with a quick lightning round here. Just ask you for a couple words for each of these questions. Um, first thing that comes to mind. And the first question is, what does service mean to you? I think service is really where you're doing something not for your own benefit, but also for the benefit of someone else or for others. And so I think service is not necessarily have to be working in, you know, a government type job, but it's, it's, it's any time where you are uh, doing something that helps others. And what's been the highlight of your time in service? I think it's the meeting other people who are like-minded, uh, whether it's in the Peace Corps, meeting a lot of friends who had very similar passions and interests and, and going through a, an experience together, or in the Forest Service, uh, meeting the, the so many thousands of, of folks who are also passionate about natural resource management and sustaining you know, forests for the future. I even met my wife in the Forest Service, so it's been a really rewarding community to be a part of. And what about on the flip side, what's been the most frustrating thing for you about service or the most frustrating time in service? Well, there's definitely some bureaucratic challenges that are frustrating. I mean, the most recent one being the shutdown this last year where, you know, it really impacted our operations. And, you know, there's so many things that are sequenced that need to happen in order for us to get things done during the summer season. And when we lose a month or so, it just it messes everything up. And it was really, it's, it's so frustrating because I mentioned we have such a, a deficit of work to catch up on and it really prevents us from, from doing that work. And it's a, it's a cascading effect. Yeah, that's fair. But despite that and, and despite any other challenges that you may face, what is it that motivates you to, to stay where you are and to keep going? I think now for me, my, my daughter, it's very meaningful for me to, to be able to work towards supporting our national forests here in California where I grew up and I enjoy and still enjoy, you know, going out into the woods. And so that's very special to me to, to be a part of that. So Jason, before we let you go, any, any final thoughts you'd like to leave with our listeners? Yeah, I would just love to encourage, especially some of the younger listeners to think about careers with the Forest Service or the Peace Corps. They've been incredibly rewarding for myself, both to kind of see the world and learn about other cultures and to also help work towards sustainable management of our natural resources and our forests for, for the future. It's a, a great, I think, space. We need bright young minds to, to help figure out these very challenging problems on how we can maintain these resources for the future. So I would just encourage you to think about that and explore it. We'd love to have you. I think that's a, a wonderful message and a good place for us to end. And I should, I should mention, uh, Jason's been incredibly gracious in joining us uh, from California, where his community is currently in a blackout due to a combination of fires and preventive measures by the local utility to make sure that another one doesn't start due to some high winds. So Jason, thank you so much. And thank you for being with us today. And also, thank you for all that you have done and continue to do on behalf of our natural resources, our forests, and, and for our country. No, thank you, No, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to think about it all and share it. For more episodes of the Inspired Service Podcast, please visit us at www.inspiredservice.org and subscribe on iTunes.